Hey, Brad, how's it going? Hey, Chris. Yeah, things are pretty good. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. Hey, I noticed we both got haircuts this week. I'm curious, when you get your haircut, what do you say? What do you ask for? For me, I want a high and tight with a zero fade. Whoa, what do you go for? That is some serious vocabulary. I just show a picture. I kind of grunt at them. And then when they start like saying, you know, how many inches, is this enough? I'm like, I just say yes to everything and hope. <laughs> Because it's always such a, it's always such a tangle of hair when I go. Cause I honestly, I probably get two a year. I think okay. I need to upgrade that. I, you, you probably don't need to go as regular as I do, but maybe more than, than twice a year. I'm kind of feeling like I'd like to be an every two months guy. There's a, uh, every two months guy. Yeah. You probably don't. Yeah. Every two to three months. I think you'd probably be good. Yeah. Okay. There's a comedian that once they said, uh, like great clips, super cuts, all these like, that's false advertising. It should be like <laughs> definitely shorter. So yeah. Definitely shorter. Not yeah, necessarily a great clipper, a super cut. <laughs> hey man, what have you been thinking about this week? This week I have Babel on the mind. The Tower of Babel story is one of my favorites. Uh I think highly misunderstood, but hmm. I think it has everything to say about what it means to have a diverse globe of human cultures. And uh so I thought we could talk about that. Right on. Let's talk about it. You wanna? Freestyle Theology is sponsored by Daily Breath, the Christian meditation app that really works. Learn more at dailybreath.app. Great. Well, let's talk about it, Brad. You uh, you got your hair cut for what purpose? Why did you happen to get it cut this week? I got my hair cut because I had my graduation from the University of Toronto. Got yeah, myself, you did. Got, got yourself a PhD, a, a player right. degree. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, t- tell our our many listeners what is your PhD in? I got my PhD in history, and I've been at it for many years now. I guess I've been in school. I realized this talking to my mom. I've been in some form of school since the fall of the Berlin Wall. No way! It's like play school, <laughs> play school, nineteen eighty nine. That's amazing. You know, there was That's maybe a, a year or two in the middle there where I wasn't, but yeah. Hmm. So it's been a long road. You're, I... You've been in school as long as Germany's been reunited. It's beautiful. Yeah. I know, isn't that something? Uh huh. <laughs> if that, when I put it that way, I feel like I'm filled with terror. You know, like <laughs> what have I done with my life? That kind of thing. But I have that fancy degree. I'm a doctor now, a real doctor. You know, those mm-hmm. those people who practice medicine are physicians. <laughs> you know, doctor means teacher. So uh, that's the story I'm going with. But beautiful. yeah, I studied uh, history at U of T. Mm-hmm. My expertise is actually in Indigenous Christianity, the history of Indigenous Christianity in North America. And the reason I got into that field was I caught a glimpse uh, years back about the goodness of human culture, especially Mm -hmm. as it pertained to Christian faith. I started reading a lot of global church history, uh, a Mm -hmm. lot of African, Middle Eastern, Asian Christianity and uh, later on got into indigenous Christianity. And I was just really interested in what it looks like when the gospel is taken up by non-Western peoples. I had always associated mm-hmm. church history with Western Europe, as most people do. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading one of my favorite authors, Andrew Wallace, he talked about how during the colonial era, it wasn't really Christianity that was exported across the world. It was a tribal version of Christianity, like a highly localized European version. 
of Christianity oh. that was exported around the world and often imposed on people. And so that was that was kind of really disappointing when I really realized that a lot of these other cultures have been denied sort of a Christian faith in their own in their own languages and their own customs in the same way that Western Europe had. When I first entered my studies into indigenous Christianity, I was quite naive. I expected to find this really rich multicultural indigenous style Christian faith all across the continent. You know, oh, it would look so different in the Great Lakes among the Haudenosaunee than it would among the Hopi or the Apache, stuff, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But as I quickly realized, the colonial way of doing Christianity just had no room for any of those expressions. Christianity oh. was identified as the religion of Western Europe, and as such, it needed to be expressed in uh, you know, a pretty short list of European languages. And if if people, if missionaries were willing to translate it into indigenous languages, it wasn't translated into indigenous deep culture. I remember reading, you know, this document. It was a translation of the Gospel of John into mm -hmm. Mohawk and produced in the late 1700s. And I was like, oh, this is going to be so interesting to look at. And obviously I couldn't read Mohawk but I thought I'll still poke around. I was going to say, if you if part of your PhD studies, yeah. I know like often you have to learn different languages. If you had to learn Mohawk as a part of that, that would be. An, oh, that would amazing. have been amazing. I ended up studying uh, like the 20th and 21st century. So I didn't end up needing to use, learn another huh. language. But in a way that's, that itself is part of the problem. Huh. The fact uh -huh. that I didn't need to learn another language in order to study by the 20th century, you need, there's no need to learn another language. Yeah. This, so you're reading this Gospel of John and Mohawk. Right. And so it's in a Romanized script. So it's using our alphabet. Uh -huh. And obviously I can't read most of the words, but I just re I noticed that kind of stumbling through this Mohawk Gospel of John. And I, you know, I'm reading John 1, 1. And I noticed that I can't read any of the words except one, which is the word logos that's what they wrote l-o-g-o-s huh. and i found that so strange that uh -huh. not it wasn't even translated into the mohawk word for word which even that word to me has some issues because i don't think when we read john 1 1 in english i don't think that in the beginning was the word means anything to us mm -hmm. and with that in mind in a sense, that translation is incorrect. Yes, it is the Greek word for word, sure. But does that, when we read the word word, what comes to our mind, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a separate discussion because but at I least in my is it and maybe I'm wrong. So, but at least in my English Bible, they're at least trying to translate logos into into an English word word, right? And in the Mohawk one. They don't even they didn't even try to do that contextualization. Not in any way. So they use the word logos, which is really really strange. And it just got me thinking. Like, it's all I, I've come back to that story so many times because it was like the symbol of hmm. the refusal to actually do the hard work of translating. Not just like what easy words mean what, but like the deep concepts. And that's scary because you have to dive deep into a culture's tradition in order right. to look for words that approximate what you're trying to say. 
because this for me this is what newbegin when newbegin talks about when he was in goes to be a missionary in india and trying to and i'm trying to how do i translate jesus is god what does that mean to a hindu i can use all these different words that they have in their religious but there's downside he does that whole word of there's upsides and downsides there's they're going to think i mean this but you're you have to but he's doing all that work trying to get that they don't even they're not even attempting and words not only is it is it hard to figure out what to say to translate words shift quickly and mm. so just like like i said like right now i think the word word might be an improper translation that it's important to be like what did the greek people that john is writing his letter to when they heard the word logos what came to mind what did it mean and that's really important because then that's that's the historical work that we can do to actually approximate words and they're going to mm -hmm. take on new meaning whatever the word is in mohawk then in the late 1700s that may have captured the same weight as what it, what the first century word logos meant to Greeks. Kind of like, as far as I understand, the logos is the, the principle of reason underlying all things, the source mm -hmm. of all things and the order behind it all, right? It's very weighty, has enormous gravity. Mm. And a first again, the word word doesn't mean that to us. I've wondered mm. like what might be a good word to say and... One of the things I thought might be kind of cool would be to say now, would be to say in the beginning, instead of saying word, to say infinity. I wonder if the word infinity has some weight in our time that when when you hear it, it kind of like hits hard and we feel like the epic bigness of it, you know? Okay. We're getting, we're getting far afield from Babel Babel. Very far. But so this... And I'm going to go back to Newbegin on that. So this was his big thing in his John commentary is the reason what John is doing is cross-cultural communication. So it's what we're talking about. And I may be going right where you're going or going a different way. So I apologize if I'm stealing your thunder or taking it a totally different curveball. But um, but in that, that the Greek, his first Greek listeners who he's writing to would have known exactly what he's talking about. We said in the beginning was the log. They knew Lagos. They knew Lagos. They knew that. They're expecting that. But then in, in 14, in 114, when he says, and the word became flesh, it like that would strike like, whoa, that doesn't fit in our categories. So I wonder when you just said that it was in, in the beginning was the was infinity. And then jump into 114 is mm. like, and the infinite became finite. Like that doesn't make sense. Like, I wonder if that starts to hit. It does the same thing. We're like, oh, that doesn't make sense that. And now I have to pay attention. You have my attention. I'm trying to understand how this works. Right. Yeah, that actually, I don't know. I, I'm not a biblical scholar, but it seems from a cultural perspective, it means something, even if it's confusing or mysterious, hmm. right? Yep. So now that you are a freshly minted PhD, I'm going to say this. It, you can't edit this out. This has got to stay. This is going public. This is in, this is on the World Wide Web. Now that you're a freshly minted PhD, I'm calling you out, Brad. I'm inviting you to never do the thing where you always have to qualify that I'm not this kind of scholar. I'm that kind of scholar. Mm. It's so funny. I'm just, I'm somewhat joking with you, but it's so <laughs> funny. Like, cause I, you did that, like right. scholars that like, the, as I've worked with scholars, they're always like, Hey, but this is not my area of expertise. There's like a, so it's probably right. a good thing to be humble about it, but it's kind of like, ah, you know, the Bible, you're fine. Keep going. So anyway, so I can just live into the fact that I'm a scholar. Yep. Exactly. A doctor of philosophy, not a doctor of history, just a doctor of philosophy. Yeah, I'll take it. Of philosophy. Okay. This, that naivety that I entered into my studies of indigenous Christianity with, 
that came from this, you know, a high view of human culture, which I think uh, our tendency is to have a fairly low view of human culture, at least in Western Christianity, because Mm -hmm. we're more interested in the universal truth behind things and the essence and all those Greek words, right? But my view is that God has an especially high view of human culture, like we've been talking about over the last few weeks, um, that image bearers travel in packs, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the way the image of God works. It doesn't exist at the individual level. Uh, It does, but it manifests always at the communal level. And Mm -hmm. so going to the Tower of Babel story, you can call it Babel. I'll call it Babel. And then we'll like, we'll diversify our audience. Beautiful. People will get into fights on the YouTube link. It'll be great. I always thought that the story of the Tower of Babel, it made no sense to me. I thought it was just a bizarre kind of a curveball of an account. And it seemed strange and God seemed very petty Hmm. in the story. And I remember trying to be like, so I don't get what did they do wrong again? And some people would be like, oh, they built a tower into the sky. And I'm okay, I don't see what's why that's wrong. Or, oh, well, they were full of pride and they wanted to be God. And I read it and I'm kind of like, that doesn't seem like that's what they're doing. Hmm. Like trying to be God. I feel like we're we're overstepping and we're kind of ad-libbing what's going on. But I think after reading it again many, many times, I think it's been misunderstood. I think this is what's happening in the Tower of Babel story, which I find quite inspiring. You know, God creates human beings and they're given a series of commands or mandates or however you want to talk about it. And one of the key things is to spread throughout the world. So that's really interesting, right? There's this command to spread throughout the world. And it got me thinking a few years back, what happens when people, when communities spread throughout the world? I remember being in an intro, what was it? It was a history course when I was in my undergraduate being taught by uh, Dr. Jim Payton. He's like a scholar Mm -hmm. on Eastern Europe. Hmm. And I remember he was talking about Romania. This is, this is a long time ago now. So maybe the details are a bit fuzzy, but I remembered the basic point, which was Rome. It was a long time ago, but Romania, it was after the fall of the Berlin wall that you were learning this. So, we Oh yeah. This was like, you know, halfway through my studies. So Romania was not part of the USSR at this point. No, not at that point. He was talking about where the Romanian language and culture came from. And because I, you know, Romania is kind of confusing. It's like Roman. Why is the word Roman there? And Hmm. it was, from what I can remember, it was, you know, one of the, one of the provinces of the Roman empire, I think it was, I can't remember. So I'm going to go with a D, Dacia, any of those ring a bell, something like that. Hmm. I'll probably be cutting that. I got to keep up my scholar cred. Um, You can't ask me these questions because I'm not any kind of a doctor. (laughs) So I don't know anything about anything. Great. All right. So these Roman soldiers um, are stationed kind of in this outpost of the Roman Empire and go up into the mountains and kind of intermingle with locals. Then the Roman Empire, I don't know if it fell in the area or it just kind of like retreated. But these soldiers and their descendants and, you know, who had mixed with locals kind of stay up in the mountains and eventually, you know, come back down and they have this totally unique hybrid language, which is 
in so many ways similar to ancient Latin at a time when all the other languages had evolved and changed in different ways. They have this strange hybrid of Latin and I'm assuming kind of a Slavic tongue of the locals and had become a new people, had hmm. become a new hybrid people, but not mixed, just new, different. Hmm. The same it was thing. Neither, it was neither the, the Slavic nor the Latin Roman. Yeah. It was, it had become, it had become a new thing in of itself. Exactly. And that, that huh. word in is called ethnogenesis, like the origin of nations. Hmm. And the same thing happened um, a few times in North America, uh, in Canada and the Northern States um, with the Métis who are a unique blend of Anishinaabe or Ojibwe peoples um, and French, French Canadians or just French fur traders. But the Métis if I was Canadian, would I know what that means? Would it, what may, would I already know that? You would. Okay, I'm American right. or U.S. I have no idea. So that's interesting. All our yeah. all our U.S. listeners, we're learning something right there. And I mean, Métis. you huh. you have you have Métis communities in Minnesota and okay. Wisconsin because the border was went right through Métis, hmm. the Métis homeland. Hmm. So. Um, but Métis people don't identify as mixed. They don't identify as half French, half Indigenous, because that was those that was centuries ago. Huh. This is a new culture with, uh, for a long time, a hybrid language, and mm -hmm. um, that's what happens when people and the you know, the Métis come about because of the reason that the Métis grow into a fairly strong community is because. Mm -hmm they exist in the in the fur trade world and the settler colonial empire has not doesn't reach them for a long time so mm -hmm. they with that freedom and that time to develop into a new people they do often mm -hmm. settler colonialism destroys all those mixtures that were happening because mm -hmm. it's seeking to impose a uniform way of how the land is treated what kind of languages are spoken what you know a uniform mm -hmm political system and so that's what brings me to babel i think the tower of babel story shows that not only it is diversity good but it is the natural way of things and the people at babel it's it's sin or where it kind of violates god's creational pattern is in its resistance to spreading and the mm. people in the story talk about how they there's like this fear of having to spread then we won't have to spread yeah. across the world uh-huh and so what that is is babel is the origin of empire babel is the origin of babylon that's where the word comes from right hmm. so a centralized power that seeks to impose that uniformity on everybody i used to think that the one language thing at babel was how things were supposed to be we're supposed to all have one language yeah that's yeah. Okay. So you're flipping that. So we're supposed to have one language. That's what it looked like at the beginning. And then God does this weird thing because they build a big tower, which shows their pride and he mixes up their languages. But what I think is really happening is the people are trying to hold, they're refusing to spread because what mm -hmm. happens when human communities spread, what happens is they grow like a certain distance from each other and they can no longer communicate over mm -hmm. the course of mm -hmm. centuries languages grow and develop and so you know there's like indo-european languages 
but most of them would be unintelligible to one another. And that's just the language part. Like what happens to custom and the stories that are told? Because as you Mm -hmm. spread out and you're further removed for centuries and centuries, like traditions develop. And you're in different, the geography changes. You're in mountains rather than fields. You're in valleys, you're in desert areas. And so that then impacts your customs and impacts your, the language and the words that you use and how you, huh? Absolutely. And it impacts the stories and the myths and the legends that you tell, which end up founding and shaping who people are. And a lot of those things are good. Let me see if I'm getting this straight where you're going. So in God's creational intent, the creational intent is that people would spread out and would naturally, God always got assumed. I, I don't know if that's the right, I'm not a I'm not a theologian, so I don't know if you're allowed to say this, whatever. but God, God always assumed that there would be a diversity of languages as people spread out and time went on, that they would end up creating these different languages, which would be a part of their different cultures, which would be a part of the beauty of it all. And Babel, they're coming together and only using one language, which then can be used in power and right. to power the, the language of empire. And so what God does is then he sends them out, scatters them, scatters the languages. He kind of like puts them back on the right path, in a, so to speak. Exactly. I think he, the reason that for the scramble of language is it actually is a gift. It's an, ex, it accelerates, you know, things had gotten really bad. And it's like this miracle that accelerates what would have happened anyways. Huh. Well, then the people can't communicate with each other. Um, I'm assuming in the story, it doesn't really say, but that it's not just individuals it's talking about again because we think in those terms every person had a different language well that doesn't make sense but there's this like well there's no we can't administer this babel society anymore so let's just mm. go our separate ways so i think it has a lot to say about that the that god's design is diversity it's not just mm. some accident and then you know, I, I was reading about it a little bit and later Jewish tradition adds some details to the story. And it it's interesting because I think it's in Josephus. He actually talks about the Tower of Babel. Uh, Josephus, the, what is it? First century historian, Jewish historian, mm-hmm. I think first century. Mm-hmm. And he centers the Babel story around Nimrod. And Nimrod was sort of this archetypal figure of the emperor, the first emperor the king of Babylon. And I just found that to be fascinating where it's like, this really is an anti-imperial story Hmm. that God's image is meant to and naturally diversifies over time. Hmm. You know, you become kind of like you mentioned, you become the mountain people, you become the field people, the coastal people, the forest people, the desert people, right? And that doesn't Mm -hmm. just hearing that, it feels good, doesn't it? Hearing that diversity, it's kind of like, oh, that's beautiful. Uh-huh. I felt like I'm, I was reading Tolkien and there's right. the, these people, like the different peoples and how do they work together? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And so what's on my mind is how often that tendency to, to kind of create a new tower of Babel happens, especially when there's power involved because mm-hmm. empire is about imposing some kind of conformity on masses of people. Now that conformity doesn't always look the same because you could do some studies in like imperial history and learn about the Persian empire. And you would find that 
they weren't interested in like a religious conformity. Not everybody had to have the same religion. Same with Rome, right? Mm -hmm. But there were certain boundaries and lines you had to cross. There was like a political and economic conformity. There was, Mm -hmm. even in Rome, it's like with the cult of the emperor, like you can believe whatever you want, but you have to fall in line here, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this tendency towards Babylon, towards and the thing is and the thing that is not really stated clearly in the tower of babel story but is kind of implicit is conformity is really only achieved through violence ultimately Mm -hmm. empires are founded on violence at some level somewhere at the if you go down the rabbit hole far enough you will find the sword Mm -hmm. and what what's on my mind is that a lot of times Christianity has employed the Babylon method. Hmm. It has to control theology, to control Christian practice, what it looks like, what its shape is. And that's happened time and time and time again. Now it always fails to achieve an actual total systemic uniformity because Mm -hmm. the gospel story goes out. And it diffuses across cultural lines and it goes places that you can't control. So like Mm. the African Christianities that exist today across the continent, they are not what the colonial missionaries imagined in any way. They they would probably be highly offensive to the missionaries, the practices, the music, the theology. It'd be highly offensive to the missionaries, but that's, that's actually what happens. When mm. the gospel story is shared, it diffuses and you can't control diffusing just like you spray some perfume in a room and there's nothing you can do to put it back in the bottle. Mm-hmm. It, it will, it'll come over to you at some point. Right. And that's mm. kind of what, what this is like as much as, as Christians or missionaries or church officials have tried to put a lid on it and control it. And we can look back in that history, especially with Western Christianity. We can talk about this another week about why there was such an obsession with control because that that answer has a lot to do with um living in the ruins of west the western roman empire and life having like the structures that had become normal crumbling there's Mm -hmm. a reason that west that christianity in the west stopped translating the bible into other languages it's not just because catholics are bad and they hate the gospel it's it was actually at its time in the early when other days. structures started crumbling, this is something that we can use to help keep some stability. Right. To keep stability and, you know, often the vernacularization of Christianity is a recipe for division. But looking at this Babel story, in a way that division, I'm putting that in air quotes for anyone just mm-hmm. listening, is also diversity, and which is also a natural part of God's world. And that's why another thing I love thinking about and talking about is if you really want to understand the schisms and splits of Christianity, almost every single one happens along a cultural line. They Mm. happen on cultural linguistic lines. So you can fight all day about, you know, Roman Catholicism versus Eastern Orthodoxy, but it splits right down the line of where they use Latin and where they used Greek. Mm-hmm. You can fight all day long about Catholicism and Protestantism, and it splits right along the line, almost exactly to where the Roman Empire, where it reached, and the lands beyond it, its frontier were the Protestant lands. So mm-hmm. it's just, 
it's thinking about these schisms out a little bit further outside of just theological correct who's correct and who was heretical it's like there's a whole cultural element at the end of the day it has less to do with did the holy spirit proceed from the father or the father and the son it has more to do with there's this linguistic and cultural divide yeah Hmm. Hmm. and i'm not trying to downplay genuine like theological differences i'm just trying to understand that you can look at it through a cultural lens and be like maybe this isn't what we thought it was this is an earlier schism is the one between the churches that we now call the Oriental Orthodox churches or the, so of like the Middle East, the Egyptian, Nubian, Ethiopian, um, Syrian churches. And I mean, there's a bunch of differences in Mm -hmm. there, but those, that division was also um, a cultural one. Often what ended up happening was the Roman or Byzantine Christianity. So the Catholicism and Orthodoxy often did the Babylon method, which was using some form of violence or or force to enforce its positions on churches that had different different languages. If if you want to read more about that, pick up uh, Vince Bantu's latest book because it's just it's one of my favorites where he looks at hmm. how the Roman Byzantine church sort of acted as the emperor empire and was like it can this is the only way you can understand these theological things. All right, this is a future podcast. So what's the name of that book? If people want to read it, that book is, your head. Uh, I think it's called the multitude of nations. It's I have it around here. Well, I want to, this is, this is one of the topics I want to do a podcast on. Cause I've heard you talk about some of Bantu stuff and how, and it's really profound how you think about how you see history and, and contextualization and some of these. So we'll come back to that. I feel like this also leads to another episode to do. I, I mean, a topic that I think is pretty obvious. We need to talk about it in some ways like deconstruction, which is a, mm. it's a popular thing right now. It's a big thing. And I just say that because I love what you're doing here, Brad, with Babel and how you're talking about this. You're hitting the same concern. Like I can imagine if someone listens to this, who's in massive deconstruction and moving away from the church, away from Christianity, it's like, Hey, you're like, yes, you're hitting what I'm saying that, yes, that, but there's this nuance in what you're doing. You're doing it from within. And so it feels like it's not a, it it feels like it's not, it is, but you're addressing the concerns of that deconstructionism, but acknowledging the concerns, the downsides, the, 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 the brutal, the brutality and the power with which the church has done things over the, over the course but still doing it from within and saying, and, and there's a way forward. And, yes. and that actually the story of Babel gives us even a more beautiful way forward than what a lot where we've gone off in the past, but it's also not, we have to abandon this and leave and go somewhere else, but there's a really beautiful way forward. Totally. So. And that we can, what I think what's happened in the last, you know, 50 years is the tower of Western Christian Babylon has mm. fallen. And we have gone different ways. It doesn't mean that we have to throw the story of the gospel away and never think about it again. But it does mean that we can ask new questions of it Hmm. and that it can go into places and territory and conversations and subcultures that it's never been. And it can grow into something almost unrecognizable, you Hmm. know? at least from a cultural perspective. And it might be, I remember a quote that Andrew Walls said, he said that a true African theology is, will do one of two things to Westerners. It will either puzzle them or disturb them. And I always thought that was such an interesting quote because it's like, you might look at another culture's Christian practice and find it offensive or at some level. And 
that just because you have that reaction, that bodily reaction to it doesn't necessarily mean that you're right. Yeah. There's a sense where if I look, okay, we're going to wrap this up, but there's a what you're saying in that quote, like if I look at another culture's practice of Christianity and it's very comfortable to me and I feel, oh, they're, that's true. That's right. It's very comfortable to me. It feels that may be a good sign that it's actually a tribe, my tribalized form of Christianity adopted by another culture rather than an authentic. It should be more puzzling or disturbing or disorienting mm. if it truly has. If I don't know in the same way, like a lot of their cultural practices or their languages should be that's different. That's new. That's different. Yeah. And just the huh. humility that you can't you might not be able to understand what's going on there. You might just mm -hmm. not be able to. Mm hmm. I'm going to read about this a little more for next time, but I remember Vince Bantu talking about the Persian ideas of around the Trinity, and they were very, very different than, hmm. I think it was the Trinity, maybe it was around the natures of Christ. And we have these views that are Chalcedonian, and right? But mm -hmm. what happens when it's tried expressed in a completely different language with its own history and nuances, right? It might end up being different. And again, this isn't relativism, it's just reality. Mm -hmm. Well, Brad, this has been fun. You mean doctor. Well, Dr. Mella, there this has go. been fun. <laughs> this has been fun. I enjoyed myself and I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't turn my nose up at doing it again next week. Let's do it. Freestyle Theology is sponsored by Daily Breath, the Christian meditation app that really works. Learn more at dailybreath.app. That's daily, B-R-E-A-D-T-H dot app. Or try it for free by downloading it in the Apple App Store or on Google Play.